Welcome to our fourth podcast. Today, we want to talk about something that I know is always on your mind. How do you know when your learners have actually learned something? What is one of the best ways to ensure that they will always learn something, whether it's something that they're very interested in and they want to learn, or whether it's something that's on the curriculum and you feel that it needs to be covered and they might just not be into it. How do you manage teaching something or making sure that the learner is engaging with that material and learning it no matter where the learner happens to be on the interest spectrum? Today we'll talk about that. We'll talk about it in terms of the four levels of engagement in any learning situation. There is a scaffolded method that you can use, a scaffolded approach, and that's what we will cover today. But let's talk about what scaffolding means. If you've ever been around a construction site, you've seen the way that things go. We start from the ground down. We want to make sure that our footings are correct and that we have the right kind of foundation for whatever comes before. So one thing that we always want to keep our eye on, of course, is whether those foundations are there. I really didn't mean to start using construction as a metaphor today, but I guess that's that's what we'll do. The things that come naturally, we just we might as well run with them. We think about what the foundational information is because we can't build a building, we can't construct something on top of shifting sand. We have to make sure that the right structures are there and that the soil is good and that the foundation is good before we can build up. But to get to scaffolding, if we're building just a one-story building, up to a certain point, we can build just based on the builder's height. We don't necessarily need to be lifted up until we have a firm enough structure going that we can, you know, maybe lean a ladder against it or and do something to reach the roof once it's time to do that, etc. But if we're building a multi-story building, or if we're building a one-story building that has really high walls, so that if you think about something like an American shopping center, which has walls that are really about two stories high, and it's a one-story building, which means you don't have multiple floors inside, but you have really, really high ceilings. All the electrical and everything is really, really far away, vaulted above the shoppers and merchandise below. When we think about a wall that is more than 10 feet tall. We have to have a way of working within the building and we have to find a way of working outside the building. Usually what we do is we use scaffolding and what scaffolding is is when you have not a ladder but you have this sort of cage or box like structure usually made of some kind of metal with a piece of plywood or some sort of wood on each of the levels. We use scaffolding to help the people who are working on the construction part of the building, the people who are constructing the building, reach one level and then the next level and then the next level. So you might have seen this more typically outside a building being constructed because the masons who are laying the brick or laying the block will use scaffolding because each level is a place to put their materials and a place for the mason to stand and do the work. And then when they need to move to the next level because they've laid all the brick or block for that level, they'll climb up or be transported up to the next level so that they can keep working. And again, they'll have all the tools they need on that level. The person who's performing the work will be there at that level because tools don't 
do work on their own in a construction situation and a mason can't lay block that isn't there. That's what scaffolding is in the world of construction. When we think about education and we talk about scaffolding, in some ways we're talking about the same thing, or that same structure, that same idea structure. When we are at the ground level and we know what we've already learned because it's under our feet and we're just um, reaching for what we can manage standing on our own two feet, that's really sort of the introduction to the topic. Right. I know what I know and it's right underneath my feet. I have a firm bedrock for what I need to learn next and everything I need is right here within my grasp and within my reach. But how do we scaffold information so that it's accessible and useful for the learner and it also makes a logical sense to them? Sometimes we need to make sure that they are building sort of this information structure in their heads. Their feet can't always be back on that original ground. The more you know, the more in some ways you are elevated past, well beyond your original starting point and that bedrock. But you're still using that as your foundation. And so when we think about scaffolding, what we're doing as teachers is we're creating the structures that are always situated on, dependent on that original information, that original learning, that original foundation. But we're structuring that information so that as the learner reaches each new level, we make sure that the learner is there, but also all the tools they need to accomplish the tasks at that level Everything they need to make sure all of those bricks make it on the building are there and available to them. And so when we scaffold, really in a rough sense, that's what we're doing. Is we are in our minds before we ever bring the reader to this kind of knowledge, we have those structures set up in our brains. We have the processes laid out in our curriculum plan. We bring the learner there, remind them of what's underneath their feet, get them started with what they can do at their current level, and then help them climb and make sure all the tools are available to them as they proceed. So when we use the word scaffolding, that's really roughly what we mean. I dropped the word scaffolding and <laughs> we spent five minutes defining it. So let's talk about the four levels of engagement in any learning situation. And this is a scaffolded approach to any learning situation. The person who is engaged here is the learner, but another person who is always engaged is the coach or the teacher or the person who is making sure that the structures are there so that that engagement is possible. And the four levels really quickly expose, read, or observe. That the person is exposed to material, they read material, or they observe something that they need to respond to. The second is to show them how. The third is to simply let the learner do it. And the fourth is to reflect on what just happened. Okay, expose, show, do, reflect. Expose, show, do, reflect. Expose, show, do, reflect. Expose, show, do, reflect. So before we get into the levels, we probably need to also add another educational term here. We dropped scaffolding earlier into the dialogue today, and so now we need to think about assessment. And I know that to many of us, assessment is sort of a, you know, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I don't want to think about it. It's something they make me do, etc. But let's let's talk for a minute about assessment. And maybe if we take that suffix off, that would help. <laughs> when we assess how anything goes, 
we know whether we have succeeded or not and exactly how. When we're baking bread, for instance, we proof the yeast before we even get started, right? Because we want to know if the yeast is viable. When you proof the yeast, every time you start making bread and you proof yeast, you have performed an assessment on that yeast. <laughs> you have. You did it. You did that. Also, when we are thinking about each stage of the process, we need it until what? It feels like a young, young child's face when it has that certain texture. Then you think, I've needed it far enough. But when it has that texture, how do you know? Your fingers and your history and your memory attach it to some other idea, and that's your way of assessing whether it's ready or not. Then we put it into the bowl covered in a warm place and let it rise. And how do we know when it's risen? If we wait too long, it's a flat, goopy, bubbly mass, right? Well, not flat, but you know, it doesn't look exactly the way we want it to. If it looks maybe only an inch taller than when we put it in there, and it's still relatively firm, not ready yet. But when it's roughly doubled, and it might have, depending on the kind of dough it is, might have some bubbles rising to the surface of that larger mass and it's sort of rounded and looks alive because, hello, bread is alive. The way that we know whether it's, quote, ready for the next stage is because we have a set of rules, really a set of baking rubrics that we have used to assess whether the bread is ready for the next stage or not. And so we're performing assessments all the time. Some of us, every time we think we're ready to take a long trip, even if it's an hour's drive, we'll go and test the air pressure in our car's tires because we want to assess whether it's ready for that trip. So assessment is not a bad word. Assessment is the way that we see what someone has learned. And just like the bread dough, how do we know when it's ready for the next stage? For each set of skills you want to make sure that your learner has learned, or for each process you want to make sure that they can manage on their own, how do you know when they have learned it? Assessment will let you know. That's how you know, so that you don't rush people through and onto the next idea before they're ready, or you keep them too long on this idea and they become bored with it. And something they loved last week, now they're like, oh, can we just be done? Make sure that you're assessing where they are so that you know when to move on. We need to make sure that assessment is built into each of our major learning tasks. Is it a part of the let the learner do it phase or the reflection and discussion phase? Is it simply a quiz? Is it a what I understand so far paragraph tagged on to the end? That's up to you and your learner. Every time you ask your learner to do something, every time you say, here's the next thing we need to learn, even if you're pulling it from the curriculum, make sure that the quizzes built into your curriculum are not just busy work. Look at those and say, does this quiz actually tell me that my child just learned that stuff that came before? Or knowing the learning style of my student, is there a better more accurate way of telling when my student has learned something. So if it's in mathematics, really probably working some problems that are suited to 
the tasks and, and knowledges that we just learned in, in this unit. Working some problems focused on that set of ideas is probably one of the best ways to assess whether they can work problems around those ideas. So it's, how well have they grasped those concepts? Can they factor a polynomial, right? Can you do that? Can you do it in 10 kind of complicated weirdo ways? Can you do it in 20 kind of easy ways? Do you Have you become fluent with that set of tasks? Well, let's just let you do it to show that you can do it. That's assessment. But in different subject areas, assessment will look different. It's great to have prepackaged curriculum that has assessments built in, but it's also great to have you there as the person who knows your learner, your learner who is not a cookie-cutter person and who might need different kinds of assessment for different kinds of information and different sets of skills. So again, not trying to create more work for you, but we are trying to create a more personal, personalized learning experience for your learner. Let's get to the four levels. When we talk about the first level, the first level is really what where we are exposing the learner to the information. Even if this is, is this information is something that seems to naturally flow from something they've already learned in a previous book, in a previous unit, in mathematics, sometimes some ideas naturally flow from the previous ideas. Other times they're like in geometry, they might just be a building block, and it's not until trigonometry and calc that everything starts to play together in this special little mathematics game. Sometimes it will naturally flow from previous information that the learner has studied. Sometimes it's completely new information. But at level one, we're exposing them to this information. They might read something about this information. They might have other kinds of exposure through an app or through a YouTube video or Khan Academy video or lessons. They might simply observe part of their exposure in a science class or even a writing class might be simply observing something in the natural world or observing the way something works and bringing that into what they have read and other ways you have exposed them to this idea. So level one is just the exposure. Level two is when you're saying, okay, you have seen a little bit about this, you've observed a little bit, how do we do something with this information? How do we, you know, operationalize this information? And so this is when, in mathematics, for instance, show them how to do the problems. You first, right? Teacher first. Show them how to do the, the problems. Demonstrate for them. In writing, show them a sample of the kind of paragraph or the kind of thesis statement, etc., that you would be looking for. What are some great models? Show them. If there's something you want them to do, demonstrate it. Find great demonstrations, but also you demonstrate it for them. That's level two. Level one, expose. Level two, show. And then level three is let the learner do it. And this is when we sort of push them away and say, okay, now you. I did it, now you do it. Show me what you can do. This could be under your watchful eye, or this could be the time when they go away and do this, and maybe maybe one day of the week for you is an exposure day, and one day of the week for you is a demonstration day, and one way day of the week for you is a let the learner do it day. 
So much depends on the way you have your school set up, right? But this is when in level three, you just let them do it. Now, are you there as a resource if they have questions? Absolutely. And so when we talk about recursive learning and iterative learning, sometimes levels two and three sort of are on a loop. You showed them how to do it so they could start doing it, but sometimes they're in the middle of doing it and they have a question. Can you show me again like this part? Can you show me again this? Yes, yes. Show them again. You don't have to explain the whole lesson again. Explain that one part, that one sticking point. And in my teaching notebook, I would make a note of that. Where were the sticking points for this person? Because then you're learning more about that learner. How do they learn? They tend to do well up to this point, and then maybe they stick a little. That will help me next time we have a new lesson in the maths, for instance. Next time we are doing something, an experiment in science. It's useful to know. But let the learner do it and realize that that might not be a straightforward motion. That might not be a trajectory. It might be more of a recursion like we've talked about in... When did I talk about recursion? Oh, it was in the love letter last week. So in the first love letter that I dropped for you, I talked about recursive learning. That's a powerful concept. It could be that in the let the learner do it section in level three, that they need to go back and reread something from the beginning, or maybe they need to observe again. I don't know if I got this one piece right. Let me go look at that again. And so when we talk about recursive learning, it's not a failure to not go from one, two, three to four, and then move on. Actually, it's probably more of a failure to go right through the steps. That means that probably what you're learning is is not at your learner's um, learning level. Does that make sense? And so what we need to do instead is trust the style that your learner brings to the table, but just know that you introduce these levels in this order, rolling back to a previous one to pick up information or to sharpen the skills. That's a natural thing. It's something that we should embrace and that's why we have the word engagement in it. If someone is not trying to shoot right through, but instead trying to loop back, trying to understand, that's our goal. That's the sweet spot. When they come and ask a question, when they, you find them looking back in the book or looking back at the YouTube video or going back outside to look at the frogs again or whatever it is, to learn that next thing so that they can really, really get they're doing it or stage three right, that's when you know that you have a win. And that's something to celebrate. That's even something to comment on and say, I saw you going back to look for more information. That's such a great idea. I'm so glad that you did that. That's so smart. And remember that we don't ever want to give anybody empty praise. Always comment on something, catch them doing something right comment on something they're doing that is so awesome, the smallest, most insignificant thing, comment on that because the small insignificant things build over time and create something that is meaningful in the learning life of your student. And then finally, when they say, oh, I'm done with that. Can you take a look at it? Or I'm done. I'm, you know, I, I'm finished doing the problems or I'm done. I finished my essay. I finished writing that thesis statement. Now what do we need to do? This is when assessment happens. And this doesn't mean that everything has a test. Sometimes assessment can mean 
let's reflect on what just happened. So, oh, how cool. Tell me, tell me what you learned from doing that. And do you have any questions about that? Even though you've done it, what are some things that worked for you? And what didn't work so well? Let's talk about that. This is what reflection can do. And this is how reflection can become assessment. Because the learner is also assessing the way that things went. Assessment is not always some sort of superhero master of doom coming in from the outside to tell them what they did wrong. Does that make sense? Sometimes it feels that way. But assessment can be something that's naturalized into the life and the process of the learner. So that the learner says, you know, I tried this, but I figured out this other thing that works better. They can't get to that if we don't encourage them to reflect on their process and reflect on what just happened. You can discuss what happened. Go through their paper. Go through the problems and say, you know, I love the fact that you're moving from this stage to this this stage with, with this kind of problem in math, but I... I don't see your work. What kind of mental math are you doing at that stage? If, if you don't mind, can you write that out for me so that I can see how you're thinking? Because that helps me because you're, you're really good at this or you're getting much better at this or I just want to know. So it's not a punitive thing to ask for the extra work. It's you let me understand with you so that I can help you better at the next phase. Another thing that you can do is simply debrief. How did it go? Do you feel like you understand that pretty well? Let's do a couple problems just like quickly and just see and then and then talk about those instead of all of the work that you've already done. Or that's pretty interesting. Can you write can you summarize your whole essay in two sentences? And then let's talk about your essay just to debrief. Stage 4 doesn't always have to be a test. Some of the most effective ways to exit a learning situation, because remember when we exit a learning situation, what we really want to do is let that exit be an open door to the next one, right? And so if that's what we want to do, we don't need to have a quiz every time. There are other ways to know what the student knows. And that's really what assessment is. That's what this exit stage is, to say, are we ready to exit this idea? Is there something we need to revisit? And it's not that we need to repeat that whole lesson, but maybe when we roll into writing this next essay project, we need to keep an eye on the strength of our thesis statements, or we need to keep an eye on this developing skill in summarizing. And so we don't need to repeat everything that came before, but sometimes that debrief, sometimes that reflection will tell us what we need to keep an eye on. And again, in our teacher's notebook, <laughs> that's something to, to list and, and attend to. Because someone, for instance, who is not doing well in summarizing in their, in their writing, also might not be doing well in summarizing when they're reading content in other disciplines or other areas. So they might not be, they might read really well in their history, but then if you asked them to summarize what happened in this one scene or at this one moment in history, they might not be able to do it. And so some, some skills, many skills, work across the disciplines or work across the subject areas. So just keep an eye on that. Over weeks, if you see that some of those skill gaps recur and you see them popping up again and again, 
then maybe it's time to just create a lesson just on that, right? And it could be detached from your regular subject-based learning and just say, here's a skill that I've noticed across two or three subjects we might have a small issue with. Let's, let's work on that. And just have a, an exercise just on that. And maybe you read something together and have them summarize something. Maybe it's just, maybe it's noticing an attention. And so you say, well, okay, let's just have a day where we notice everything. So let me tell you a story. I have this friend in Western New York. He's an amazing poet. He's an amazing organizer of people, an amazing organizer of noticing and noticers and just love and compassion. It's wonderful. But one thing that he does, because he wants to make sure that his noticing skills are excellent, one thing that he does every year, every year that I've known him, he does this every year, is he takes a whole day and for that whole day he does not say anything to anyone, but throughout the day he officially notices everything around him and he writes at least one haiku from his noticings every hour of that day. And this is a person who lives sort of in a, I don't want to say, lives um, lives in a sort of homesteady way out in the middle of nowhere in western New York. And so he has a lot to notice and he has a lot of chores and they have only wood-burning stove for heat in their home and there's a lot of 19th century kind of work that he has to perform all day every day and he lives out there with his wife and his sons. For this one day every year he wants to make sure that he is noticing everything about his day, that nothing slips past his notice. Nothing uh, escapes his attention. And of course they say that there's only so much of what appears in the natural world that we actually apprehend. Out of everything happening, happening around us, there's only a small slice that we can notice, that our brains can manage and apprehend and translate and transcribe for ourselves. But he tries to notice as much as he can and turn that whole day into crisp poetry. And I just think that's a sort of thought for us when we're thinking about how do we help someone with attention? How do we help someone with noticing? Maybe you can't spend your whole day like that the way that Michael does. Maybe there's an hour a week when the whole family can go somewhere, even out in your backyard, and officially notice and collect detail. I do this sometimes with my college students, and especially when we're studying poetry or when we are starting a descriptive essay, sometimes even when we're starting a narrative essay, we'll take a walk. And we will not talk to each other, and we will not check our phones, and we will just notice everything around us and try to collect information that comes from our sensory experience. Try to collect as much sensory detail as we can. Try to notice who was there. Somebody was walking across the quad. Someone stopped to smell a rose. Someone was carrying too many books, and one of the books almost fell, and they picked it back up. Notice these things and collect them like a scientist would collect data and then come back inside or sometimes we it's a beautiful day we'll just sit outside on the grass and talk about what we've collected and out of what we've collected what could come together to 
become something else, become a poem, become an essay, become an interview subject. So it's worthwhile. I think it's worth considering that you might want to incorporate that kind of noticing hour into every week. So here we are. Let me loop back to the center. Thanks for humoring me by letting me tell that story. The four levels of engagement in any learning situation are super important. We expose, we show, we let them do it, and then we reflect or assess. You want to make sure that you do these in order. It doesn't make sense to have someone do something unless they have the foundational information in place or unless they know how, we might set people up for frustration. For that reason, too, I don't really believe in pretests. Some people say, let's pretest and see what they know. Well, if you've been working on something and this is the next stage of this body of knowledge, why do you need to pretest? You just knew from your exit reflection last week how they're doing. So if you have curriculum that has a lot of pretests built in, ask yourself, why is that there? Do I really need to do that? I don't think so. So if you do these levels in their order and you allow for the natural way that your learner will learn, which means you're not stuck in going lockstep one, two, three, four, and then you learn something new, one, two, three, four. It could be that you go one, two, three, two, three, two, three, two, three, two, three, two, three, two, one, two, three, 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 and then you're at four. Does that make sense? Trust the process. Let your learner learn the way that they naturally, successfully learn. Because remember that one of the great, great benefits of learning at home is that your learner is learning how to learn for the rest of their lives. It's not that one day they are 18 and they get their homeschool diploma and they're done learning forever. (laughs) They're learning from you and with you and on their own, how do I learn things? In which ways am I a strong learner? And you want them to be able to let this invisible voice in their head say, I know that I learn better when, and they know how that works. When I can read a little about it, somebody just shows me how, I try as long as I can, and then maybe I ask questions and I keep trying, and then I say, okay, how did that go? Because this is helpful not just in K through 12, not just in college, but in your career. This is helpful in your church and spiritual life. This is helpful in your family life. Were you perfect at being married when you were first married? Or did you try to learn from other people, maybe from observation, and maybe those lessons or those families or those great married couples showed you how, and you tried, and then you sometimes have to go back for advice, or sometimes you read a book on how to do that a little better, (laughs) and then you just keep going. It's a recursive process, right? And sometimes you and your partner will ask each other, okay, how are things going? You're doing level four, right? (laughs) And then you might go right back and need to read a book again, might need to go right back and observe other couples, might need to go right back and do the work that will show you and show your partner, I'm still working on this. I'm still learning. I'm still learning you. I am still trying to do what I need to do to help us be successful together. The four levels of engagement are lifelong levels. I hope that this podcast has helped. 
and I wish you so much success in all that you do. I'm so happy that you are doing this with your children. At this moment in our history, I know that some days it can be discouraging, but on those days, know that somebody has your back. Somebody out here believes in you. You've chosen to commit yourself to this very important work, and you are the right person for this job. We know your children mean everything to you, as ours do to us. That's one reason you homeschool, to make sure they get the best possible start. At The Process Effect, we read the research on learning and gather the best information. Then, we share the highlights and create ways to incorporate experience-based and research-based processes into your existing practice to support your homeschool. We talk to non-traditional teachers, researchers, learners, and homeschool parents, and share the conversations with you in our podcasts and in our social media. We even share the research with you in an ever-expanding practice library. At The Process Effect, we make it simpler to incorporate learning processes that have an amazing effect. Thank you for joining us.